Welcome to the Majlis, podcast of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. Majlis is the Arabic word for an assembly, literally a gathering of people sitting together, and it was used for the sessions of learned scholars, philosophers, intellectuals, and artists brought together to discuss and debate our podcast intends to accomplish the same purpose of bringing together experts and scholars for discussion and conversation about the politics, histories, cultures of the Middle East, Islamic world, and Muslim diasporas. You can find the Majlis on your favorite podcast site, including Spotify and Apple iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think by giving us a rating. Salam, hello, bonjour. Uh, I'm your host, Adnan Hussein, of this episode of The Majlis. I'm director of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project here at Queen's, and I want to welcome you all to a very interesting uh, episode with a wonderful guest um, to talk about a very difficult uh, issue, a complex issue. And so I'm so appreciative of this scholar's work uh, and textured, nuanced work on this. Um, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Dana Olwan from Syracuse University. She's Associate Professor in Women's and Gender Studies. And um, she is uh, a scholar who works at the nexus of feminist theorizations of gendered and sexual violence, examines solidarities across geopolitical and racial differences, as well as feminist pedagogies. And um, she's had a lot of different grants to support her you know, important transnational research, and she's published uh, articles uh, that have had a big effect on the field of women and gender studies in a variety of places, including the Journal of Settler Colonial Studies, Canadian Journal of Sociology, Feral Feminisms, and many other places. She's also co-editor with Margaret Papano of Muslim Mothering, Local and Global Histories, Theories and Practices from 2016. And she also uh, writes about these issues in kind of public media on Rabble, Ricochet, The Feminist Wire, and Al Jazeera. Um, what we're going to be talking with her today about is a recent book that she published called entitled Gender Violence and the Transnational Politics of the Honor Crime. And this was published uh, just in uh, 2021 by Ohio State University. And I'm really delighted to be able to speak with a colleague and a friend, um, Professor Donna Olwan. Donna, welcome to the Mudgeless. Thank you so much. I feel really honored and special um, to be here with you all. Um, thank you so much, Adnan, uh, for this very kind introduction. Um, that's very generous also because um, I feel particularly um, happy to be on this podcast because you have been a mentor and a friend and a colleague. So um, it feels special to be on this conversation, having this conversation. With oh, you. well, that's so, so kind. It's just, um, you know, wonderful to have you here. I really appreciate it. And this is a really... Uh, excellent book, um, a very serious study, and as I mentioned just in the introduction about it, that uh, you know this is a topic that's very difficult uh, to study. It's very difficult, in some ways, to even read about um, these terrible cases of violence against women. And I imagine and understand from you know your own remarks in uh, in it that it's a difficult and complex book to write. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit 
of the background about how and why you came to studying this and also some of the challenges and dilemmas, you might say, of trying to write, um, you know, about violence and violence against women specifically and the issues that that posed in, um, for you and for scholarship in general. Well, thank you so much. That's such an important question to ask. Um, so I want to start by acknowledging that I enter the conversation around surrounding gen gender and sexual violence and writing about gender and sexual violence and trying to confront gender and sexual violence from the academy um, with um, humility, with concern, with anxiety, actually. So um, that anxiety has been with me for the past decade uh, when I started to write and research and think critically about how we speak about gender and sexual violence and how we contest it um, and the ways in which we report it, the ways in which we think about it, the way in which we critically analyze it and the ways in which we try to stop it. So those issues are not resolved for me. They were not resolved at the time of the writing of this book or at the time of publishing of this book or even at this time when I'm speaking to you about this book. Um, and I think that it is important to acknowledge the difficulties with which we speak about gender and sexual violence because um, gender and sexual violence is not just a scholarly topic on which we can make our careers. Um, gender and sexual violence is a reality that so many men, women, and children and vulnerable folks experience um, at a variety of intersections of identity, um, whether that is sexual, gendered, racial, um, socioeconomic, um, relating to ability. So it's important to recognize that we are talking about a real issue that impacts um, real people, people um, whose lives are um, completely disrupted by the gender and sexual violence they may experience, whether in the safety of their homes or in public, um, and they may experience routinely or singularly, but gender and sexual violence impacts people's lives, real people, people who sometimes are killed um, by the violence, they are murdered by this violence. Um, so I, so I, again, I enter, I wanna stress this, that I enter this conversation with humility, with concern and with anxiety. Um, you asked me the question of how did I start researching and writing and thinking about this topic, and actually it starts in Kingston, which is where you are located, so it starts in Canada, and it starts in Canada in two ways. Um, the first is um, in relation to some of the activism that I started to do in, in Canada um, regarding um, Palestinian um, human rights and issues relating to boycott, divestment and sanctions. Um, within the Canadian University and outside of it. And this is work that started um, when I moved to Canada in 2003. Um, and I was in Canada between 2003 and 2012. And as this work evolved and developed, it started to intersect and it needed to intersect in very clear and very deep ways um, with solidarity efforts with um, Native and Indigenous communities in Canada. And one of the first kind of lessons that I began to learn from um, Indigenous um, solidarity activists and from Indigenous writers and scholars was that um, if you want to understand the settler colonial um, nature of the Canadian state, then you have to understand the relationship, the endemic structural relationship between settler colonialism in Canada and violence against Indigenous women's bodies um, and Indigenous communities. And that's 
something that is structural, that is foundational, and it, you cannot untangle um, Canadian settler colonialism um, without addressing the ways in which it targets people's bodies, people's lands, um, people's resources, and those that's the kind of triad that you have to understand. So some of the work began around that, to learn with humility about um, issues like violence against Indigenous women, um, to learn about the realities of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, and to start to think critically about what role, um, what responsibilities do Palestinian activists in Canada who are calling for solidarity campaigns have towards the Indigenous communities um, in, across and within the Canadian um, state who are impacted by Canadian violence. Um, so, so that's one of the ways in which this project began, that I began to think about the relationship between states and gender and sexual violence in relation to Canada. The second is very context specific, which is in relation to Kingston, as I stated. Um, so towards the end of, I was, as you know, I was doing my PhD at Queen's University from 2003 till 2009. And towards the end of that period, there was, um, very serious political changes within the Canadian state that brought about or brought into power um, a conservative government that often weaponized um, issues relating to um, gender and sexual violence um, in order to fortify and buttress um, anti-immigrant policies and practices that manifested within the border of the Canadian state, but also at the border of the Canadian state. And by that, I mean that um, the state utilize the selectively utilize and i'll explain what i mean by that in a second but selectively utilize and weaponize the gender and sexual violence the rising rates of gender and sexual violence um, within um, racialized and minoritized communities in canada in order to determine who can actually enter Canada, who can become an immigrant, um, and what forms of migration might be possible um, within the Canadian state. So the Canadian state's approach to gender and sexual violence at that time was kind of um, twofold. On the one hand, hyper-visibilization of certain forms of gender and sexual violence, and in particular forms of gender and sexual violence that occurred within minoritized and racialized communities, uh, in particular communities of folks who were migrants or recent migrants to the Canadian state, and neglect and or denial of gender and sexual violence against Indigenous um, communities within Canada. So I was very concerned, perplexed, um, and frustrated by this um, tension, the seeming tension between both. Obviously, we know theoretically that these are not tensions, that these are actually interrelated. Um, the state uh, wanted to weaponize a form of gender and sexual violence against certain communities and also wanted to ignore another form of violence in order to um, continue and to continue to extend stories about state innocence. Um, so, so that's the kind of like political um, backdrop to my interest, my interest in thinking about gender and sexual violence in critical ways. But the event, if I may speak about it as an event, um, and I do this without actually um, trying to dissociate it from a structure of gender and sexual violence, 
but the event that uh, made me very interested in focusing in particular on crimes that are known as honor crimes um, was the case that occurred um, in Kingston, um, in particular in the Rideau Canal when uh, with the case that was known as the Shafia murders. Um, and we can talk more about those murders, but what was so um, difficult about that uh, murder was obviously the macabre nature of the murder. So it was four women, four girls and women whose bodies were recovered from the Rideau Canal. Um, and what happened afterwards in relation to the media frenzy um, and hyper-focus regarding the Shafia murder um, was very interesting to me as a scholar who's interested in thinking about issues of migration, issues of um, community belonging, issues of accountability and issues of solidarity within racialized and minoritized communities. Um, so that, that murder and my desire to understand um, a, what was the hyper-focus about, but B, and perhaps more importantly, what was our role as Muslim migrants in Canada, um, as people who belong to racialized and minoritized groups within Canada, what was our role and responsibility um, towards talking about, speaking about, and contesting and confronting gender and sexual violence? Um, those were the two main concerns that um, made me want to pursue this project and, and really better understand and figure out what I could do as someone who was at that time located within the Canadian Academy um, and someone who was confronted with these murders and shocked by them and actually um, really alarmed by both what had happened and how it was being spoken about. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, of course, I was also in Kingston during that period of time, and we recall um, both how horrifying the events were. I mean, you know, for people who don't know, I mean, many of our listeners are Kingston based, but, you know, this podcast goes, you know, well beyond. Many people may not be familiar with Kingston being a kind of small city, university town with, you know, several. Uh, military base and several uh, you know other kinds of institutions like prisons and so on it has a certain kind of you know ambiance and culture that is associated with these kind of state carceral um, organizations and it's considered you know a very sort of stable quiet sort of place as a result um, of course that elides over you know many of the things that are really going on but it was sort of shocking for this to happen um, in Kingston nearby. And um, so there was a lot of focus, but there was a lot of national focus and attention as you're pointing out. And during um, trial, uh, the trial and so on, there were all the national media around this, uh, you know, the Kingston courthouse. And so it definitely affected um, all of us, you know, who lived in this city, but broadly it was a national kind of story. So that's very interesting to hear about that um, background. Um, it seems that led you to really look at some of the ways in which um, this was being portrayed and what um, you know uh, the you know what were the politics around the representation and the um, you know high attention given, what use it was made of. So I know in your first chapter you do talk a little bit about that particular uh, set of uh, murders and the coverage around it uh, and what it authorized and enabled the Shafia murders. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about once you started getting into it, what did you find about 
um, how in the Canadian context um, uh, these cases and other cases that also received a lot of attention um, uh, you know what kind of what were the politics around the, around the representation of these and then how did that spread beyond the Canadian context yeah thank you that's um, a really like important point to make about the link you know, thinking about geographic space and how we can think about um, these murders, right? So on the one level, it's like super um, context specific. So you have to understand what was happening in Kingston at that particular moment, what stories were being narrated, which stories were being elided. Um, what do we know about the very structure, the very fabric of Kingston in 2009 and 2010 when these murder, when the murder happens and later on when people go to court and, you know, we have this like hyper um, attention and focus on the city of Kingston. And I think you're right to remind us that, you know, when we think about Kingston, we also have to kind of pay attention to the national level. And certainly the Shafia murders rose to national level um, attention, right? And, and there's like a few things to say about that. And I wanna at first address like what was happening in Canada and then I can speak to the international because what we learn about the Shafia murders and what become known, the crimes, the forms of gender and sexual violence that become known as honor related violence or honor crimes within the Canadian context certainly don't remain contained within the Canadian context. And in fact, they travel outside these stories, um, travel outside of the borders of the Canadian nation state. And that's what's really, um, to me, interesting to kind of track. So I became, became really interested with tracking stories, thinking about, um, A, yes, the representational politics, how do these representational politics um, get codified? So like, what is actually being stated? What is being said? What are the stories that are circulating? Um, and also, how are they circulating? So who's circulating them? Why are they being circulated in the way that, in the ways that they're being circulated? Um, but also recognizing that stories um, don't remain contained in the spaces and places in which they are founded or in the spaces and places in which they are initially told. So that's a big part of this book as a whole. Like I'm really interested in um, narrative movement. I'm interested, and obviously these are not just narratives. Like I'm not trying to make these into um, literary stories. These are incidences of people's um, encounter with violence and it's important to again emphasize that and that's again the difficulty that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast but to begin with I think like it's important to recognize again that the Shafia murders became coded very quickly as a form of um, honor crime or honor killings um, and if you if you followed the story closely, you know that this happened almost instantaneously. As soon as the bodies of um, the Shafia woman were um, recovered from the Rideau Canal, and as soon as their identities were confirmed, um, we started to, and, and they were confirmed as migrants, as women of color, as um, Muslims or women of Muslim background, as soon as those three identity markers um, were identified by media and also by the courts and also by the police, um, and that quickly and almost automatically, these crimes became known as honor-related violence. And because of that scripting, these crimes became placed within a broader genealogy 
of crimes and forms of gender and sexual violence that had occurred in Canada that were also known as honor-related violence. So here it's important to kind of just note that this murder became part and parcel of a narrative that was already unfolding, that was already happening, which stated that migrants to Canada are coming to Canada um, with particular ideas about um, gender and sexual violence, tolerance towards gender and sexual violence, um, about uh, the role of women, the place of women in society, um, what they should or should not do. So there was already this script that was unfolding within Canada. And the idea was that these ideas that these migrants were coming from were fundamentally at odds with Canadian notions of gender equality, Canadian notions of women's empowerment, Canadian notions of um, the right of everyone to live in a, a violence-free environment, right? So, so I think once the two kind of interact, once the violence is scripted as an honor-related crime, and that script interacts with the idea that migrants are coming to Canada with violent notions, with violent inactions of patriarchy, with violent um, kind of... Um, attitudes towards women. Once those two come together, what we have is a kind of like a superscript. And the superscript is that Canadian society at large, and here Canadian society at large actually means um, white dominant society, um, fundamentally disagrees with the ways in which these migrants are living their lives within Canada. And that the ways that in which they are living their lives in Canada is actually endangering of girls' and women's rights to live freely um, and to with choice. So these are the kind of like internal narratives that became scripted on this murder. Um, and again, I think it is really important to emphasize that the murder was placed within a longer, broader genealogy of murders um, that were already scripted in media as honor-related violence. So here, I just want to kind of like note that while it's really important and interesting to think about the ways in which these scripts are working, those scripts are kind of recodifying themselves and kind of becoming more powerful, what's really important to kind of remember is that this is not just a matter of um, scripting or narrating. It's not just a matter of discourse um, and thinking about words. What matters is that these discourses have power and that these discourses would then be used to actually articulate pretty violent policies and practices and put into place particular kind of structural changes that would have very serious effect and consequence on migrant communities within Canada, both the ones that already exist within Canada and the ones that were um, applying to become migrants within Canada. So, so that's kind of, um, I think, where, my, where I'm trying to make an intervention, to think about the ways in which um, we narrate gender and sexual violence, to think about the ways in which these narrations um, gain particular kind of national traction, and to think about also how these narrations then become utilized for particular kind of political agendas. Um, and my first kind of focus, um, focus site of analysis was Canada, 
in large part because of where I was located. Right. So much of this book, and this is, I think, something maybe we'll get back into, much of this book is like written about places that I have intimately known. So the policies and practices which I'm talking about are policies and practices um, which have serious impact and have had serious impact on uh, my life as a Muslim migrant, as an Arab woman in Canada, but they've had serious um, consequence on um, the lives of the communities to which I belong in each of these places and spaces. So, so that's like the national Canadian script, which we can again unfold and think about. But then I also just want to note that these national scripts did not remain contained within Canada. So the ways in which Canada, like the Canadian media scripted um, this particular form of gender and sexual violence um, also traveled outside of the borders of the Canadian state. Um, with the Shafia murders and another murder that also rose to national prominence in Canada, which is the murder of Aqsa Parbaz, um, those two particular narratives um, were actually picked up and also cited and utilized by right-wing actors um, in the U.S. who utilized these two cases as evidence that, um, again, Muslim communities are more um, likely to commit forms of gender and sexual violence against women, um, and that um, this was something that uh, multi cultural, multiracial um, states like the US and Canada needed to be very wary of and needed to confront and contest. It's important to note here that the honor crime in this instance, in these two geographies, often functions as a um, regulating script that becomes weaponized by um, right-wing actors, not always, but right-wing actors, in order to support and buttress anti-Muslim policies and agendas, nefarious anti-Muslim policies and agendas. Um, so that's kind of like the big political context of these narratives and their power. Right, right. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of those agendas and the way in which they were mobilized, these uh, you know, discussions about uh, the particularities or the um, uniqueness, a singularity of the honor crime in a way to target specific um, policies. I'm thinking, you know, uh, during this period, uh, the Harper government, uh, the conservative government, uh, federal, you know, governing Canada, the level of the federal government, you know, put in place uh, the uh, Barbaric Cultural Practices uh, Act. Um, you know, that actually was encouraging and setting up a tips line and, you know, it ended, they ended up having to change it because it caused quite a lot of controversy, but the logics behind it were about, you know, encouraging society to surveil those who were different and who had, you know, so-called barbaric cultural practices, many of which were related to, you know, gender practices and, you know, um, gender relations that would be surveilled and monitored. Um, and I'm wondering if you also think that um, the kind of coverage um, that was produced and the discourses that were produced also perhaps enabled policing and surveillance of migrants under a new kind of auspices and you know how it affected Canadian immigration practices and law. So what were some of the material consequences? Since as you pointed out, it's not just words and language in an abstract way, 
but they're connected with and mobilized, mobilizing forces in a more structural way to um, authorize, um, you know, kind of political agenda against immigrants and migrants. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you saw those consequences coming together in mm -hmm. Canada. Yeah, thank you so much, Adnan. So I think you already kind of alluded to some of these ways, right? So you spoke about, um, you know, the language that was um, uh, put forward by the Canadian government um, in a number of documents, but perhaps the most salient was the Discover um, Canada um, handbook, which is a handbook that is given to um, soon to be or actual uh, immigrants to the Canadian state. Um, and if you remember in 2009, 2010, that version of the handbook, that handbook said, you know, um, Canadian tolerance um, extends to, you know, allowing uh, folks to migrate. And, and there's like a whole kind of like celebration of Canadian tolerance and Canadian um, investment in multiculturalism. But then the Discover Canada handbook also states, but Canadian tolerance does not extend to um, forms of gender and sexual violence, which are named in the handbook as barbaric cultural practices. Um, and there's a few that are named and two that are quite important is obviously honor related violence. Um, and the second is female genital mutilation and female genital cutting. Um, so, so the act actually, um, I, I apologize, the so Discover Canada handbook, what it does is it um, focuses on particular forms of gender and sexual violence um, that are unmoored from a larger and broader spectrum of gender and sexual violence. Um, and this is something that we see again and again in the literature. So anytime that folks are speaking about um, the honor crime, right? So what they're doing is they're singular, singularizing and exceptionalizing this form of violence. Um, and they're doing so by separating the honor crime. They're saying that there is something specific about the honor crime that makes it quite distinct and quite unique than other forms of gender and sexual violence. And in this particular instance, it's interesting that this handbook, which is a handbook that speaks to migrants primarily, um, is cautioning them um, against this particular form of gender and sexual violence. Now, of course, like we can argue that um, it is within the purview of the state to caution against forms of gender and sexual violence, um, but it is important to note when the state is actually exceptionalizing and naming particular forms of gender and sexual violence. And then we might wanna ask also like, how does that language um, position the state as basically a neutral actor um, in this story of gender and sexual violence. How does this focus on quote unquote, the honor crime or other forms of quote unquote, barbaric cultural practices, um, not only culturalize certain forms of violence, but how does it also um, hide and conceal um, the responsibility and also the role that the state has played in actually enacting um, and or buttressing forms of gender and sexual violence that have particularly targeted um, indigenous communities within the Canadian state. So that's, I think, what a lot of feminist scholars, that's what a lot of activists have kind of um, highlighted and outlined with the document like Discover Canada, which is the hypocrisy of these states that utilize and weaponize certain forms of violence, right? A, by exceptionalizing them, which is the unmooring act, right? You separate it from the broader spectrum of gender and sexual violence. And second, by culturalizing it. So you attach 
attach these forms of violence to the bodies of certain um, communities, and in particular, Muslim, brown, Arab, and racialized and minoritized communities. So what you're suggesting is that, that this form of violence is particularly evident or particularly prevalent within these communities and that you as the state have a role um, to kind of protect girls and women um, within these communities. So we can talk about the paternalistic role that the state is playing. Obviously it's a hypocritical role um, and it's paternalistic and that both are dangerous, right? But I think the other part that we must talk about is how this particular language ends up harming local and community-based efforts, right, to confront gender and sexual violence. So here we can be very honest and very um, clear that, you know, we need to confront gender and sexual violence in, in all of our communities, right, and we need to understand the cause for gender and sexual violence within our community. Um, not in order to rationalize it, but in order to take a very direct and oppositional um, stance against it, right, and to commit in order um, to stop it. But that this particular weaponization of the language of gender and sexual violence and the state utilization of this language ends up harming the work of activists within the communities. It ends up actually making it that work more difficult because anytime that the state begins to utilize this language, anytime that the state hyper-focuses on a particular group of people that they think um, are committing forms of gender and sexual violence in um, higher rates than the average community, anytime that that happens, um, people within the community have a harder time um, speaking about the occurrence or the phenomenon of gender and sexual violence within the community. And the reason for that is because they recognize that anytime they bring it up, um, this can be utilized against their own community. This can be utilized in order to buttress and bolster forms of racism that are structural. So you alluded and you spoke about like, you know, the surveillance of the community. You spoke about um, the policing of the community. And this is true in both um, the Canadian and the US context. And we'll talk, I think, more about the US context. So yes, the, the, the worry isn't, um, the, the worry is that anytime the state begins to utilize this language, that the consequence of it is that we don't develop our own ways of confronting gender and sexual violence, that we become more reluctant to calling out gender and sexual violence within our own communities, um, and that in the name of um, anti-racism, gender and sexual violence and the contestation of gender and sexual violence takes a back seat. So these are like the issues that are at work here. Yeah, well, I'm really glad that you um, raised that about some of the conflicts and contradictions that occur in the way in which honor crime um, is, is um, discussed and policed and put into policy. And I think something that you said, perhaps we, you know, um, readers, I mean, listeners would benefit. Well, um, readers would understand because you discuss it quite a bit in the book, in the introduction, but listeners might benefit from, you know, kind of going back and um, looking at the genealogy of these issues and controversies that you just were alluding to, because you also mentioned that it fit that the scripts around how once you identify it, as honor crime and as culturally based, uh, particular to Muslim 
communities and so on um, that it fits into a broader kind of uh, pattern that is already a priori available. So there's a prehistory in some ways to the incidents that you were talking about in the late 2000s. And in your uh, book, in the opening uh, you know, introduction, you did talk quite a bit about some of these conflicts and the history of how honor crime came to be distinguished as a particular form, a singular and unique form of violence against women. Um, I'm wondering if maybe you could um, give a little bit of a context for what those kinds of debates were like, and these are happening transnationally and globally. And that way then we might have that um, understanding what the kind of key components of defining it, of separating it from other forms. How did that, how did that begin? And what were the controversies and discussions uh, around there that sometimes, as you were pointing out, do end up um, putting into conflict you know, anti-racism work and, you know, anti-sexism, uh, you know, struggle uh, as well. So I think that's important maybe for the listeners to get a sense, if you could help us out. Yeah, thank you for that. So in my book and in, in my introduction, what I, tr what I tried to do is figure out um, how did the honor crime become a separate distinct um, legal and theoretical category, right? So, so how did the honor crime actually become separated from a broader um, spectrum of gender and sexual violence? Why was it um, constantly referred to in the literature that emerges from the UN and other NGOs? Why was it referred to um, in um, a distinctive way or a distinguished way? So I wanted to understand that. And where I went actually was to a lot of um, documents from the UN, a lot of resolutions that appear from the UN around like 1990 and onwards with um, a few key documents that appear in 2000. Um, so, and what I wanted to understand is um, how did the focus on the honor crime come about at the UN level, at this international level? And what were the conversations? So I spent a lot of times in the UN archives trying to look at um, these conversations that unfolded. What were the resistances? What were people saying? Were they agreeing or disagreeing regarding this naming? So as you know, I'm very invested in thinking about language, right? So I wanted to know how the UN was defining this form of violence, which it saw as unique and distinct. Now, part of the issue is obviously we can look to the UN documents, we can look at how states were dealing and with these definitions, um, but this is actually a conversation that is taking place also in feminist literature and feminist literature has reckoned with this question of whether um, the honor crime has any unique or distinct um, forms um, or characteristics. And um, this is a debate that is not settled. So I just wanna be very clear about that. I'm not the first person to write about this. Various scholars have actually engaged and thought about this uh, particular um, problem. But generally it is agreed upon for folks that argue that the honor crime is a distinct form of violence, um, is that there's three things that make the honor crime different than other forms of gender and sexual violence. And the first is relating to the actors. So who actually commits the form of gender and sexual violent, violence? So folks who agree that it's distinct argue that 
gender, the honor crime is different than other forms of violence, including intimate partner violence, um, in um, the perpetrator, in the character of the per perpetrator, um, him or herself. In this case, predominantly, the honor crime is understood to be perpetrated by the brother, the father, or the uncle of the woman, the deceased woman, right? And this, in this case, is different than intimate partner violence, which is often committed by um, the husband, the fiance, um, the boyfriend, right? So a person who the woman has an intimate um, relationship with, a relationship that has a potentially sexual nature. So that's one of the key distinguishing factors. So, and this kind of extends also because um, there's a distinction between intimate partner violence, which is often thought to be committed by an individual, while honor-based violence is committed and or authorized by a collective. So the father, the brother, or the uncle do not act on their own, but they often act with the permission and or authorization, implicit or explicit, of a community of folks who are aware of this murder um, or the violence that is about to occur. It doesn't necessarily have to end in murder, although it often does end in the murder of the um, person. So that's one aspect of the difference. The second aspect of the difference relates to um, the premeditation. Um, so the idea is that intimate partner violence, um, and again, I'm, I'm kind of stating these as if they are facts and I'm not suggesting that they are, I'm suggesting that these are how people understand how the literature understands those two as completely distinct or separate. And we have to kind of rethink some of these categories. So the second um, part that is used to distinguish honor-related violence as opposed to um, other forms of gender and sexual violence, including intimate, par in intimate partner violence, um, is related to the kind of planning that goes into um, murdering um, a person in the name of honor, in the so-called name of honor. So here, what I mean by that is um, it is thought that intimate partner violence usually um, happens in a moment of quote unquote fit, fit of fury, that there is no premeditation, that it just happens in the instance that it happens. Um, while honor-related violence occurs with premeditation. So there's planning, um, there's often um, thinking that goes into it. Um, this period could be short or it can be long. Um, and what's some scholars like uh, the Palestinian scholar Nadira Shalhoub Kaburkian has have argued, she has argued that um, not only is there a period of planning, but it's a period of planning that the person um, who is going to be the victim of this violence is often actually aware of. Um, so it's kind of like waiting for this violence to happen. So they're aware that something is happening. They know that things are being planned, um, that the violence is going to be enacted. So that's the second. And the third, and that's, I think, the part that I have been the most concerned with is this issue of collective reward and sanctioning. So part of the reason that folks argue that honor-related violence is separate or distinct or unique is that the law appears to be sanctioning it, that the law gives credence to such forms of violence um, by offering the perpetrators of this violence what are called or referred to as quote unquote legal loopholes. And these legal loopholes are thought to either um, basically exonerate men who commit violence and or offer them reduced or lenient 
um, sentences. So those are kind of the three uh, main uh, distinguishing factors in relation to honor-related violence. Now, feminist critics, feminist theorists, and even feminist activists, there's a lot of debate um, around whether these are actually distinguishing factors, whether we can argue that um, there is, in fact, a legal category called honor crime in the law, whether, in fact, um, planning and premeditation goes into forms of intimate partner violence, including intimate partner violence committed by um, a husband um, or a boyfriend or a fiance. So, so those debates are continuing. They're important. Um, and they tell us something about how we're understanding patriarchal forms of gender and sexual violence. And that topic is ongoing and continuing. Um, and what's more important about that is that it has political consequence. Deciding whether we're going to distinguish the honor-related violence from a bigger, bigger and broader spectrum of gender and sexual violence has political consequences. And I think that's why these debates are so difficult um, to enter into and or resolve. Yeah, thank you so much for giving us that um, context and background. Um, it seems like there are two loci for analysis that one might have on this. One is whether there, you know, these kinds of category, whether um, the uh, ways in which uh, honor crime is distinguished from other forms of gender, you know, based violence against women, um, you know, whether this really is something that is distinguishable um, and, you know, kind of dealing with those various categories and debates and arguments around that. And then it seems like the other sort of dimension or arena for analysis as is, as you articulated, what the politics and the consequences of recognizing it as a distinct form of gender violence and de-emphasizing its, you know, place within a spectrum of many other kinds of, you know, domestic abuse, intimate partner abuse, uh, rape, etc. There's such a, you know, whole, you know, uh, and, and many of those UN reports, as you point out, do discuss initially, like the, initially when you have the conjunction or the expansion, you might say, of, you know, gender analysis in the human rights kind of world and looking at violence against women within a human rights framework, it's a very capacious, it includes many, many different possible possible ways in which women are subject to violence, disadvantage, and so on in all these different ways. But then what happens is that there's a crystallization of a special focus around honor-based violence against women to lift it out of just the kind of campaigns around, you know, um, confronting, you know, violence against women broadly, and th th these are targeted then in various ways. So what the politics of that is and the consequences, that's something that you address quite a lot in your book. Um, uh, so I'm wondering if maybe we should turn there, since we mentioned that there are debates about, you know, whether these categories actually work. I'll just point out that, you know, the premeditation, for example, I mean, when we have campaigns or in law enforcement against uh, murder, we don't have specific campaigns against, you know, premeditated murder. It's just that there are sanctions. Um, you know, like, so there, there might be reasons why there could be nuances in how these are prosecuted on a legal sort of level, but that clearly there's an oversized work that's being done politically by having distinguished 
um, yes. you know, honor-based violence from other forms of gendered violence. So I'm wondering yeah. if you could talk a little bit about how you worked that out. What were the contexts in which you saw, you know, the consequences of, um, you know, creating a separate, emphatic, unique, singular category of honor crime? So, so I think there's a lot to say about this. So I think the first is to kind of note that even if you accept that there is something distinct or unique about the crimes that you're describing under the category of the honor crime, one of the issues we run into is once we accept this category is that the category is so capricious that it's not clear what we actually mean by honor related violence, right? So what are we actually talking about or trying to contest? That becomes, it becomes messy very quickly. And we can see that actually in some of the definitions of the UN. So like, I think I speak in my book about um, at least one or two definitions. And if we look at these definitions very carefully, um, it's, there are just so many different forms of violence that are contained here um, that could actually also be included under a broader category called patriarchal gendered and sexual violence. They can also be included under another category of femicide. So it's not clear to me what we gain as folks who are committed to ending gender and sexual violence by utilizing this term. So there is a lack of specificity. So that's one. The second problem, I think, is that once you use it, you've already entered into a culturalized, racialized, um, and targeted way of speaking about femicide. There is no out of that. That's the reality. This crime or these forms of violence have been attached to certain kinds of bodies, certain kinds of geographies, and certain expressions of patriarchy, right? So once you have utilized the terminology, you have done that. The third, and I think perhaps the more important part in like resisting this language is that as so many activists and so many practitioners on the ground, so many survivors of gender and sexual violence, patriarchal gender and sexual violence have told us is that when we utilize this language, we're actually emboldening the claims of the perpetrators of violence themselves. These perpetrators utilize the language of honor right, in order to reinscribe certain ideas about um, women's roles in society, women's place in society, what particular um, rights they may have, what particular expressions of um, their bodies might be possible or permissible. So this language of honor gives credence to a claim that the perpetrator of gender and sexual violence is actually making against um, the person they target. So it's important to contest that. And again, I think that based on that, it is important um, to utilize um, and kind of, so utilize the language that contests that, so contests the language that the perpetrators themselves use. Um, and one example or one way in which um, activists from the Palestinian context, for example, have done that is they have utilized the language of femicide, right, um, in order to point to the structural, right, and to also um, point again and again to the ways in which gender and sexual violence fits into a broader um, political um, landscape. And in the Palestinian context, that landscape is characterized by the settler colonial 
realities that Palestinians face across the geographies of Palestine. So we can't understand um, the increasing rates of gender and sexual violence in Palestine without understanding um, the um, increasing rates of violence um, of um, settler coloniality, Israeli settler coloniality itself. So they have used the language of femicide to describe what is happening there. Um, and, and so I think the the what I'm trying to point to is that um, anytime we utilize this language, we have entered into politicized um, terrain. Um, and we need to kind, what we need to do is flip the script and listen to people on the ground and understand better. Um, what they are telling us would be better ways of describing what is happening and describing um, the acts of gender and sexual violence that are taking place um, right now and on the ground. Having said that, I will just say that I don't think hiding or running away from this language or these words um, can in of itself confront this form of violence. So it is important. Um, so, so, and I've run into this problem in my book because on the one hand, I'm not sure that it's good to exceptionalize this form of violence and I oppose that for exceptionalization. On the other, I don't think we can explain or contest it without utilizing this language. So we cannot deconstruct the language without actually unpacking the language is doing, right? So we have, so in some ways we run into a conundrum as activists, as scholars, right? On the one hand, we think that the language is um, politically, enters us into politically treacherous ground and has structural and material um, effects that are quite dangerous and um, harmful to women. And on the other, we cannot conceal or hide away from talking. So we have to kind of talk with the very same tools, right, before we can unpack them. So that's a problem that we run into um, with this. Definitely. I mean, that is a big conundrum. I mean, I think a lot of the work of your book is trying to use kind of close, detailed analysis within this framework of the, you know, documents that are produced, the coverage, and then to analyze them, to unpack, um, you know, what's at stake, what the politics are, what the consequences are, so that we have a real critical engagement with it. Um, um, and that contradiction is, of course, um, you know, there all the time uh, in doing that critical analysis. Um, and so actually, I was very intrigued with a number of the cases and the rich sort of analysis that you brought to bear um, in thinking about it. I mean, you, we've already alluded to the US and obviously that is a, you have a whole chapter dedicated towards looking at the exceptionalizing, you know, I mean, this is very useful in the context of America that is always, you know, representing itself as an exceptional, you know, American exceptionalism. I mean, there's a way in which it's using the exceptionalizing of um, certain cultures uh, and this certain forms of gendered violence in particular ways. Um, and you really situated it in, you know, the D US discourse on gender violence and racial terror in this chapter. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you saw the consequences of the honor crime functioning in the US, um, you know, discourse um, in this era of the war on terror, but also for its you know, local or domestic analysis of those consequences in Muslim communities uh, in the United States, as well as how it's linked with its policies during this global war on terror abroad. Yeah, um, thanks for that question. So 
in in my book i ended up as i said tracing and tracking you know the ways in which these narratives were traveling and and i end up in the us and i wanted to look at the ways um the kind of distinct and also overlapping ways in which the honor crime was appearing in us discourses and at first, when I started looking, because I was following and tracking the stories of the Shafia murders and Afsa Parvez's murder, the place where I found the most quote unquote traction for um, the honor crime was in the uh, blogosphere, in the right wing blogs, um, newspapers, journals, right? So I was looking to see, and I saw a lot of references towards the honor crime as a particular threat that is endemic to the US that's rising, it's a growing threat. That was the language that was often used. And I would see it primarily in like right wing resources, right? Fox News even has documentary on honor um, crimes um, in the US. Um, and in this documentary, Fox News traces the stories of um, primarily Arab and Muslim men um, who have committed atrocious acts of gender and sexual violence against members of their own families, including in one instance, um, the daughters of one um, Egyptian, twin daughters of one Egyptian man. Um, so Fox News mobilizes, um, write these stories in order to write this, again, superscript that um, Islam is encroaching on America. And one of the ways in which it's encroaching on America is through violence against women, increasing rates of violence against women. And that was, yes, one site where I saw these um, narratives kind of take hold a lot. But I think that as my research um, expanded, I began to see more traction and more reference and sometimes critical reference to this focus on the honor crime in mainstream news media. And the most recent was um, with the, um, obviously with the uh, Trump presidency um, and uh, the release of um, his first executive order, the first executive order that presidential executive order that he released um, on his basically in his first week um, into his presidency, which is today known as um, the Muslim and African ban, travel ban. So as um, many of your listeners uh, probably know the Muslim and African travel ban um, was issued in order to restrict right um, particular or folks from particular nationalities and backgrounds from entering or re-entering into the U.S. and it had major major consequence um, on folks' lives right not only in like disrupting their day-to-day -day activities of traveling but actually fundamentally reversing some of their rights to actually be in the U.S. Um, and one of the things that appears in this document, right, which is filled rife with um, the language of the war on terror, the us and the them, the patriotic, like the patriotic duty of protecting the US and guarding it and ensuring that its borders and those who are within it remain safe, right? So that language is obviously very much there, but nestled within this language is this, um, or within this order, right? Um, is this language of uh, protecting, again, girls and women um, and, uh, from forms of violence, particularized forms of violence, including um, honor-based violence. And a lot of critics and a lot of um, commentators were kind of surprised by this inclusion because it seemed at odds with the kind of 
politics, right, of this executive order. Um, and lots of feminist critics, lots of commentators have done really amazing work in uncovering and rethinking what this inclusion um, of gender and sexual violence, what this move was politically about, right? Um, and in some ways we can understand it in similar terms, reference terms to the ones that we use to talk about the Canadian context, in another, I think it is important to note the ways in which this language extends the hold of the language of the war on terror, which is not only a language of um, and policy and practice of us versus them, right? It's also a language that weaponizes feminist um, ideas and ideals, right? And positions the US state um, and by extension, the American people um, as saviors and protectors of the very people whose lives the US state actually violates on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so the same kind of um, paradoxes are at work within um, the executive order. And so in my book, I was trying to understand what was that about and is this new or exceptional? And the reason I wanted to do that is because I think sometimes in uh, in leftist academia, if we can say that, we often hyper-focus on right-wing actors and actions. And I think that while it is important um, to pinpoint um, the race, racial logics and even racist logics that underpin such executive orders that are often, in this case, issued by a right-wing presidential um, uh, executive power, um, it is also important to pay attention to the ways in which liberal uh, formations uh, also repeat this logic, also position the US um, and by extension the American people in a position of the protector, in the position of the savior of um, minoritized racialized men and women, right? Even and while, um, the very same state and its institutions are actually committed to violating the lives of these folks. Um, and in, in my work, while I was doing this research, I ended up learning um, a bit more about the workings of um, ICE, right? Um, and what ICE does, some of its campaigns are all about kind of manage, I mean, we know that ICE is like, a very, it's its one of the apparatuses that is used to target migrant lives, right? It's one of the apparatuses that is used to constrict immigration. It's one of the apparatuses that violate um, immigrants' right to stay and remain within the US. But it is also the very same apparatus um, that utilizes the language of gender and sexual violence within the US to quote unquote protect um, girls and women um, from forms of gender and sexual violence that are occurring or could occur within the borders of the US or outside of it. So I was interested in thinking about how these formations um, came about, how they also extend and how they remain not just at times of quote unquote crisis or exceptionality or, or times of right-wing rule, but they actually extend because they're actually very formative to the very structure of the United States itself and the very logics of the war on terror, um, which um, had not ended, has not ended and its logics, we are still living the consequences of as migrants within the US state. Indeed. Well, I mean, I think that's it's a very interesting uh, analysis that you offer now and in the book, and I really encourage 
listeners to um, read read the book and read um, that chapter about um, how it was take, taken up and used in the American context. Um, but as you pointed out, it is a globalizing discourse. Um, and that's why a transnational approach is um, very useful. Before I ask you about uh, what you found um, the transnational approach to bring uniquely to an understanding and analysis of the politics of the honor crime, I did want to ask you just about the two uh, Middle East contexts. You've talked a little bit about um, uh, resistance under settler colonialism and how um, you know the question has been reframed as femicide in the Palestinian context. You uh, so you you do, we've already talked a little bit about that, um, but I think there might be more that you might want to tell us about um, these kind of international campaigns and how they articulated themselves within the context of um, you know Palestinian society um, talking about this sponsorship of. Uh, you know, a song about gender violence uh, by a Palestinian rap group and, you know, how that unfolded, uh, what the critiques were in your analysis of it, um, but also in the post-colonial state that is a place like Jordan and the way in which, you know, it may mobilize some of these transnational discourses you know, for its own state purposes. Uh, we saw, you know, the US state, you know, but how do post-colonial states in, you know, the Arab Middle East, uh, Global South, you know, how do they uh, articulate their relationship to, you know, the transnational politics of the honor crime? I think that would be really useful um, to have those two contrasts to what's happening in Canada and the United States. Yeah, so, so I think like, we started speaking about the difficulty of writing this book because of the particular topic, right? How hard it is to write about gender and sexual violence, how hard it is to contest it from, you know, the halls of the academy um, and how impossible actually it is to confront it from the halls of the academy. But another aspect of why it was so hard was related to the pursuit of and the following and the traction of these discourses right, and noticing how they're moving within and across borders. So as I started to do the study, I realized that, you know, I could write a text about what was happening in Canada. And in fact, I had, you know, and I could write another one about what was happening in the US. But what I couldn't contend with or think about or like figure out was how was the honor crime as a transnational discourse kind of traveling? How was it being, um, understood, if it was being understood as an exceptionalized form of violence, what were the stakes of that? Like I wanted to figure out um, how different national and international and transnational contexts um, dealt with forms of gender and sexual violence, whether those were exceptionalized, unique, and or um, had a particular name, what was the naming, but also how did people on the ground understand these forms of violence? And what I kept coming up against was that the form of analysis, the modality of analysis that I was using for Canada and to some extent the US, while it was comparable or comparative, um, was not sufficient. It was a deficient model. So I wanted to reckon with that. I wanted to figure it out. And I tried to do that in the book some, in some places more successfully than others. But the truth is the discourse does not travel between these spaces in even ways. In fact, it often travels in very contradictory ways and that its political consequences are not singular. They're actually multi 
um, there's so many aspects to them and some of these politics are complementary and some of them are contradictory. So I was trying to kind of map all those um, distinctions, similarities, overlaps, but also some of the ruptures, right? So when you spoke, you asked me like, well, what happens, for example, or how is the honor crime understood within the Canadian within the Canadian context, but also how might it be understood within, let's say, a Jordanian context or a Palestinian context? So I have focused on these four sites because these are four sites that I have intimately known. They have basically um, shaped my life. So I wanted to understand how gender and sexual violence um, was both experienced, understood, and also contested in each of these sites. And the tools that I had to understand what was happening were deficient because my tools that I developed were tools that were developed in singular sites of analysis. And that wasn't working. What worked in Canada was not working in Jordan. It was not working in the US because the very nature of the patriarchal gender and sexual violence was different because it was different historically, it was different politically, it was different racially, it was different socioeconomically. So I wanted to attend to those differences and distinctions. So, so that's kind of the rationale as to why I'm looking at a multi-sited analysis and, a trans, and I'm utilizing a transnational feminist lens to understand the honor crime. And in the Palestinian context, what we see is again, on the one hand, we have the language of the honor crime, and it is a language that is exceptionalized. And on the other, we have activists on the ground, like people like the Talat movement, who are calling for a more radical understanding and confrontation and contestation of gender and sexual violence. And that radical contestation demands an understanding of the structural conditions of gender and sexual violence. It demands a reckoning with uh, patriarchy both local and Israeli forms of patriarchy. It demands a reckoning with um, the privatization, the attempt of the pseudo-Palestinian state of the privatization of gender and sexual violence. And by that, I mean the ways in which um, the Palestinian Authority has tried to A, exceptionalize that violence and B, um, hide it, conceal it, or act like that violence is only occurring um, within the private sphere and that therefore it had no public consequence. So that work um, basically upturns the very categories by which we understand gender and sexual violence. It upturns them by reminding us that what happens in the private sphere is very much linked and or shaped by what is happening in the public sphere and that the violence circulates and travels between those spaces. So, so that's like one way in which I was trying to better understand what was happening in Palestine. I was trying to understand um, the realities of gender and sexual violence there. And I wanted also to understand some of the debates that occur when activists um, contend with and or confront gender and sexual violence, both in the local context and also globally. So that was very interesting on the Palestine uh, case. Thank you for elaborating on that. Um, uh, getting back to uh, the other part of the question, I know it was a big question, is about the special conditions of how this all works out in a, a post-colonial state in the Arab Middle East like Jordan. I'm wondering, you have a very interesting chapter on it. What were you observing in, in that context? 
So Jordan, there's a particularity to the case of Jordan. I, I think you know, Adnan, that I was uh, raised in Jordan. My family moved there after 1990. So I have a personal investment in the politics of um, what has actually taken place in Jordan, what is actually taking place in Jordan in relation to um, really unprecedented rates of increased uh, forms of violence against women. And we've seen this in the past two years, but it's actually been um, a, an ongoing trend. And that is a trend in terms of like, the rise of gender and sexual violence in Jordan and across the region, I would say as well. But what we see in Jordan is interesting, I think, from an activist perspective, from a feminist perspective, and from a scholarly perspective. And unfortunately, in the scholarship on the Middle East, Jordan does not get or warrant as much attention as other areas in the Middle East. And there's a lot of reasons for this, and we can talk more about it, hopefully, at some other point. But in relation to um, my study of gender and sexual violence and my focus in particular on the honor crime. Um, a lot of reports have indicated that um, honor related violence is on the rise in Jordan. So there's been a lot of attention um, around this issue within Jordan itself and also internationally. So that's like one kind of context that we have to pay attention to. The mix between the um, attention that is rising from the local um, and also attention that is coming from the outside and kind of the mixture between both and what kind of activisms it produces. So, so that's like one way we can think about what's going on in Jordan and that activism has a long history in Jordan that has focused on gender and sexual violence, but also other and broader issues in relation to rights in terms of divorce, right in rights in terms of um, equality um, of access to education, equality in terms of access to the labor market, market, fair pay. So there's a lot of activism that is taking place in Jordan surrounding um, a slew of issues, including efforts to try and end and regulate um, and ensure that there are stronger laws in the books um, surrounding cases of gender and sexual violence. So in 2017, we start to see um, more of this work that is actually not new or exceptional, but actually more concentrated in the realm of the law. And this coincides with a um, royal commission and royal kind of support for um, changes in the law and the judiciary that would guarantee stronger laws in the books um, regarding several issues, including gender and sexual violence. So there is like royal investment um, from the king and also from um, the um, government itself to ensure that um, the laws on the books reflect a modern um, state, a state that is committed to the rule of law. And in 2017, the king um, ensured and put into place a committee that's called the Royal Committee for Reforming the Judiciary and Enhancing the Rule of the Law. And this committee came up with a number of recommendations regarding changing the laws. And one of those recommendations was focused on issues relating or laws relating to gender and sexual violence. Um, one of the laws that the committee recommended be struck from the books and, in, and be removed and or altered was um, Article 308. And Article 308 is an article that exists in the Jordanian Penal Code. It is an article that is commonly known as and referred to by um, Jordanian feminists as the marry your rapist law. This is a law that previously exist existed in the Jordanian Penal Code. And what the law did was it allowed men who are accused of sexually violating and or raping women 
to receive reduced sentences, reduced legal sentences and or be exonerated should they agree to marry the woman that they had sexually assaulted and or raped. And not only if they agree to marry these women, but also if they remain married to these women for a period of three years. So this law has existed in the books for a long time and feminist scholars have identified it as an egregiously violent law that basically compels women who were raped to get married to their rapists um, and also remain married to them. So feminist scholars, feminist activists have identified this law um, as a violation of the rights of survivors of sexual assault and rape. And they have um, basically advocated and agitated for the removal of the law and or the alteration of the law. And in 2017, what we see is a culmination of two decades of efforts to strike this law from the penal, Jordanian penal code. And in 2017, the Jordanian parliament agreed to do exactly that. So it was a huge major victory for Jordanian uh, feminists who had been lobbying, who had been advocating, who had been working in tandem with government officials, who had been working um, in terms of changing um, societal um, discussions and conversations surrounding gender and sexual violence. What they did was a major, major victory that required um, the coming together of over a hundred civil society actors um, in under the banner of a coalition called the Civil Coalition to Abolish Article 308. Um, so, so it's a it's a very major victory, not just for Jordan, but for like activists all across the Arab world who have often argued that the law is this space or this place that has been used by um, perpetrators of violence against women to protect them, to enable them, and to allow them to basically evade justice, right? So, what, so in 2017, we saw this pretty big success. And it is due in large part, I think, to um, these efforts by civil society actors um, to ensure that laws that um, harm women are uh, basically um, removed from the penal code. And in my uh, chapter, what I wanted to study, what I wanted to understand is I wanted to evaluate the success because this success has largely been uh, viewed in favorable and celebratory terms, not just locally, but also globally. And I think, of course, this is a major, major accomplishment. This is an accomplishment that deserves and warrants our celebration. But it also, in my mind, deserves critical attention and consideration. And one of the ways that I wanted to think about this celebration, this very important milestone, this very important step is to think about the ways in which um, this reliance on the law as a source of justice, this reliance on the law as a panacea for social problems such as gender and sexual violence, I wanted to understand what it does to our sense of justice. I wanted to understand what it means for feminists to moor our activism so clearly and so readily to the site of the state. And the reason I wanted to think about that more critically is because 
what we have seen in the case of Jordan and in, in, in particular, is that the state has often mobilized these successes in order to expand its particular, um, the particular control it has over women's lives. So for example, in 2017, while the state was celebrating these particular successes, which is the removal of Article 308, um, we also saw certain kinds of changes in the law that were also alarming. For example, the lowering of the age of marriage for girls and boys. So I want to think critically about these moments and I want to think about them beyond the framework of celebration. And in my book and in this chapter in particular, I wanted to think deeply about this moment um, beyond this um, way in which I think we end up um, readily and too quickly waiting for the state to protect us readily and too quickly, hoping that the state's laws can save us from gender and sexual violence. And that's precisely what this chapter um, does. And in my work, I've really tried to push against this idea um, that we can end forms of violence um, in all their intersections by relying primarily on the site of the law as a source of justice. Well, that's really interesting and really leads right into my uh, final question for you. In contrast to this uh, politics of the transnational honor crime, what do you see as, you know, the kind of transnational politics of hope and solidarity that those who do want to confront uh, violence against women, um, you know, might be able to learn from your book in your sort of final thoughts after having completed this study? Well, thank you so much, Adnan, for all the awesome questions you have asked me and for giving me this opportunity to speak to um, some of the ideas that I have discussed in the book. I think that I can answer this question about solidarity and hope um, by, again, shedding light and highlighting the work that is happening on the ground. Um, and I think in both the Palestinian and Jordanian context, what we see is the rising power of activists, of folks on the ground, folks who are local, based, folks who are, folks who are really aware of um, the politics of place, right? They know what's happening. Um, they understand it historically, materially, right? So these are the people who we should be listening to and gaining advice from in regards to how we should contest or confront gender and sexual violence. I do want to say, though, that I'm not 100% sure, and this is something that I think I have gleaned from studying these different four sites um, in a transnational uh, feminist, through a transnational feminist analytic. I'm not sure that it is the state that will save us or end forms of gender and sexual violence um, that are structural, that are historical, um, and that intimately impact the very fabric of our lives, whether that is in the space of the private or the space of the public. I think that what we see sometimes is our return to the state, um, our dependence on it, our desire for it to resolve the problem in gender and sexual violence. And what we see often is that the state will utilize this particular call, this particular need, this particular agenda, and it will utilize it in order to further marginalize, further incarcerate, further tighten, further surveil, and, serve, and further monitor particular kinds of populations. So I, I think that the work that we have to do is continually be vigilant about um, both our desire to end gender and sexual violence, our commitment to ending gender and sexual violence, and the types of um, 
agendas and desires and dreams we put forward um, and plans we put forward to ending gender and sexual violence. Um, that those dreams, we have to kind of guard them, those plans, we have to guard them from the encroachment of the state upon them. Because my worry is that, and I think I speak a little bit to that in the uh, fourth chapter, which is related to Jordan. My worry is that when we ask the state to protect us, um, the state steps in, but it steps in in order to protect itself often. And it uses um, our need, our desperate need to end gender and sexual violence often against us. And we see this in the case of Jordan with the state stepping up, um, things like guardianship laws, things like protective custody, things that end up putting women um, in the face of and in the way of more forms of gender and sexual violence rather than less. Um, so I guess like to end, like what I, what I want to emphasize, what I want to highlight is if we want to end gender and sexual violence, the only way to do so is together, to do it collectively and to do it from the ground up um, and to do it um, while being hypervigilant of the ways in which gender and sexual violence can be used in order to divide, to separate and to conquer um, and to extend violence rather than end it. Well, I wanna thank you so much, Dana, for being so generous with your time and talking to us about your fascinating research. You've given us really so much to think about. Um, and I really encourage uh, everyone to read the book because there's so much more that, of course, we've just scratched the surface of the amazing research and in-depth analysis that you're providing about these four different contexts and the transnational circulation of discourses around the honor crime and both the local and the transnational politics that are at stake. And uh, I think everyone will learn quite a lot. So do get the book, Gender Violence and the Transnational Politics of the Honor Crime. Dana, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Adnan, for having me. I really appreciate all the thoughtful questions you have given me and the opportunity to engage with your audiences. And if you want to find out about Dana's work, uh, as I said, I don't know if you have something coming up that you want people to know about or where they should find your work. Uh, if so, let, let listeners know. I'm sure they'll be interested at this point after this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Most of my work is available on Google Scholar. And if you cannot access it because it's behind a paywall, please email me and I'll be very happy to email it all to you. Thank you so much, Adnan. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Ma um, salam, everybody. And uh, we'll talk with you again very soon. Upcoming, we have an episode we hope to do with Juan Cole about peace movements in Islam, history, religion, and politics, a new collection that he's put out. So look forward to the upcoming episode of The Majlis. Thank you for joining us in The Majlis, a podcast by MSGP. Muslim Society's Global Perspectives, or MSGP, is an initiative at Queen's University dedicated to connecting the complex history of Islamic societies with the contemporary world. You can connect, learn more, and support us by checking out our website, www.queensu.ca slash msgp, and stay up to date with our events by following us on Twitter at msgpqu and on our Facebook, msgpqu. You can also follow our YouTube channel, The Mitchless.